after that hugely emotional chapter. <clears throat> Hopefully we can recover for a little bit with chapter 10. Hitherto I have recorded in detail the events of my insignificant existence. To the first 10 years of my life I have given almost as many chapters, but this is not to be a regular autobiography. I am only bound to invoke memory where I know her responses will possess some degree of interest. Therefore, I now pass a space of eight years almost in silence. A few lines only are necessary to keep up the links of connection. When the typhus fever had fulfilled its mission of devastation at Lowood, it gradually disappeared from thence, but not till its virulence and the number of its victims had drawn public attention at the school. Inquiry was made into the origin of the scourge, and by degrees various facts came out which excited the public indignation in a high degree. The unhealthy nature of the sight, the quantity and quality of the children's food, wretched clothing and accommodations, all these things were discovered. In the history produced a result mortifying to Mr. Brocklehurst, but beneficial to the institution. Several wealthy and benevolent individuals in the county subscribed largely for the erection of a more convenient building in a better situation. New regulations were made, improvements in diet and clothing introduced. The funds of the school were entrusted to the management of a committee Mr. Brocklehurst, who, from his wealth and family connections, could not be overlooked, still retained the post of treasurer, but he was aided in the discharge of his duties by gentlemen of rather more enlarged and sympathising minds. His office of inspector, too, was shared by those who knew how to combine reason with strictness, comfort with economy, compassion with uprightness. The school thus improved, became in time a truly useful and noble institution. I remained an inmate of its walls after its regeneration for eight years, six as a pupil and two as a teacher, and in both capacities I bear my testimony to its value and importance. During these eight years my life was uniform, but not unhappy because it was not inactive. I had the means of an excellent education placed within my reach, a fondness for some of my studies and a desire to excel in all, together with a great delight in pleasing my teachers, especially such as I loved, urged me on. I availed myself fully on the advantages offered me. In time, I rose to be the first girl of the first class then I was invested with the office of teacher, which I discharged with zeal for two years, but at the end of that time I altered. Miss Temple, through all changes, had thus far continued superintendent of the seminary. To her instruction I owed the best part of my acquirements. Her friendship and society had been my continual solace. She had stood me in the stead of mother governess, and, latterly, companion. At this period she married, removed with her husband, a clergyman, an excellent man, 
almost worthy of such a wife, to a distant county and consequently was lost to me. From the day she left, I was no longer the same. With her was gone every settled feeling, every association that had been made lowered on some degree a home to me. I had imbibed from her something of her nature and much of her habits, more harmonious thoughts. What seemed better regulated feelings had become the inmates of my mind. I had given in allegiance to duty and order. I was quiet. I believed I was content. To the eyes of others, usually even to my own, I appeared a disciplined and subdued character. But destiny in the shape of the Reverend Mr. Nasmith came between me and Miss Temple. I saw her in her travelling dress step into a post-chaise shortly after the marriage ceremony. I watched the chaise mount the hill and disappear beyond its brow, and then retired to my own room, and there spent in solitude the greatest part of the half-holiday granted in honour of the occasion. I walked about the chamber most of the time. I imagined myself only to be regretting my loss and thinking how to repair it. But when my reflections were concluded, and I looked up and found that the afternoon was gone and evening far advanced, another discovery dawned on me, namely that in the interval I had undergone a transforming process, that my mind had put off all that had borrowed of Miss Temple, or rather that she had taken with her the serene atmosphere I had been breathing in her vicinity, and that now I was left in my natural element and beginning to feel the stirring of old emotions. It did not seem as if a prop were withdrawn, but rather as if a motive were gone. It was not the power to be tranquil which had failed me, but the reason for the tranquillity was no more. My world had for some years been in lowered. My experience had been of its rules and systems. Now I remembered that the real world was wide, and that a varied field of hopes and fears, of sensations and excitements, awaited those who had courage to go forth into its expanse, to seek real knowledge of life amidst its perils. I went to my window, opened it and looked out. There were the two wings of the building, there was the garden, there were the skirts of Lowood, there was the hilly horizon. My eye passed all other objects to rest on those most remote, the blue peaks. It was those I longed to surmount. All within their boundary of rock and heath seemed prison ground, exile limits. I traced the white road winding round the base of one mountain and vanishing in a gorge between two. How I longed to follow it farther. I recalled the time when I had travelled that very road in a coach. I remembered descending that hill at twilight. An age seemed to have elapsed since the day which brought me first to Lowood, and I had never quitted it since. My vacations had all been spent at school. Mrs. Reed had never sent for me at Gateshead. Neither she nor any of her family had ever been to visit me. I had had no communication by letter or message with the outer world. School rules, 
school duties, school habits and notions and voices and faces and phrases and costumes and prefaces and antipathies. Such was what I knew of existence. Now I felt that it was not enough. I tired of the routine of eight years in one afternoon. I desired liberty. For liberty I gasped. For liberty I uttered a prayer. It seemed scattered on the wind, then faintly blowing. I abandoned it and framed a humbler supplication for change, stimulus. That petition, too, seemed swept off into vague space. Then, I cried, half desperate, grant me at least a new servitude. <clears throat> Here a bell, ringing the hour of supper, called me downstairs. I was not free to resume the interrupted chain of my reflections till bedtime. Even then, a teacher who occupied the same room with me kept me longer from the subject to which I longed to recur by a prolonged effusion of small talk. How I wished sleep would silence her. It seemed as if, could I but go back to the idea which had last entered my mind as I stood at the window, some inventive suggestion would rise for my relief. Miss Grice snored at last. She was a heavy Welsh woman, and till now her habitual nasal strains had never been regarded by me in any other light than as a nuisance. Tonight I hailed the first deep notes with satisfaction. I was debarred of interruption. My half-effaced thought instantly revived. A new servitude. There is something in that. I soliloquized. Mentally, be it understood, I did not talk aloud. I know there is because it does not sound too sweet. It is not sound like such words as liberty, excitement, enjoyment. Delightful sounds truly, but no more than sounds for me. And so hollow and fleeting, that is, mere waste of time to listen to them. But servitude... That must be matter-of-fact. Anyone may serve. I have served here eight years. Now all I want is to serve elsewhere. Can I not get so much of my own will? Is not the thing feasible? Yes. Yes. The end is not so difficult. If I had only a brain active enough to ferret out the means of attaining it, I sat up in bed by way of arousing the said brain. It was a chilly night. I covered my shoulders with a shawl and then I proceeded to think again with all my might. What do I want? A new place, in a new house, amongst new faces and in new circumstances. I want this because it is of no use wanting anything better. How do people do to get a new place? They apply to friends, I suppose. I have no friends. There are many others who have no friends who must look about for themselves and be their own helpers. And what is their resource? I could not tell. Nothing answered me. I then ordered my brain to find a response and quickly. It worked and worked faster. I felt the pulses throb in my head and temples, but for nearly an hour it worked in chaos, 
and no result came of its efforts. Feverish with vain labour, I got up and took a turn in the room, undrew the curtain, noted a star or two shivered with cold, and again crept to bed. A kind fairy in my absence had surely dropped the required suggestion on my pillow, for as I lay down it came quietly and naturally to my mind. Those who want situations advertise. You must advertise in the Shire Herald. How? Well, I know nothing about advertising. Replies both smooth and prompt now. You must enclose the advertisement and the money to pay for it under a cover directed to the Herald of the editor of the Herald. You must put it the first opportunity you have into the post at Lowton. Answers must be addressed to J.E. At the post office there, you can go and inquire in about a week after you send the letter, if any are come, and act accordingly. This scheme I went over twice, thrice. It was then digested in my mind. I had it in a clear, practical form. I felt satisfied and fell asleep. With earliest day I was up. I had my advertisement written enclosed and directed before the bell rang to rouse the school. It ran thus. A young lady accustomed to tuition, had I not been a teacher two years, is desirous of meeting with a situation in a private family where the children are under fourteen. I thought that I was barely eighteen. It would not do to undertake the guidance of pupils nearer my own age. She is qualified to teach the usual branches of good English education, together with French, drawing and music. In those days, remember reader, this now narrow catalogue of accomplishments would have been held tolerably comprehensive. Address J.E. Post Office, Lowton, Shire. This document remained locked in my drawer all day. After tea, I asked leave of the new superintendent to go to Lowton in order to perform some small commissions for myself and one or two of my fellow teachers. Permission was readily granted. I went. It was a walk of two miles and the evening was wet, but the days were still long. I visited a shop or two, slipped the letter into the post office and came back through the heavy rain with streaming garments but with a relieved heart. The succeeding week seemed long. It came to an end at last, however, like all sublunary things, and once more towards the close of a pleasant autumn day I found myself afoot on the road to Lowton. A picturesque track it was, by the way, lying along the side of the beck and through the sweetest curves of the dale. But that day I thought more of the letters that might or might not be awaiting me at the little burr whither I was bound than of the charms of lee and water. My ostensible errand on this occasion was to get measured for a pair of shoes, so I discharged that business first, and when it was done I stepped across the clean and quiet little street from the shoemaker's to the post office. It was kept by an old dame who wore horn spectacles on her nose and black mittens on her hands. Are there any letters for J.E.? I asked. 
She peered over me, over her spectacles, and then she opened a drawer and fumbled among its contents for a long time, so long that my hopes began to falter. At last, having held a document before her glasses for nearly five minutes, she presented it across the counter, accompanying the act by another inquisitive and mistrustful glance. It was for J.E. Is there only one? I demanded. There are no more, said she, and I put it in my pocket and turned my face homeward. I could not open it then. Rules obliged me to be back by eight. It was already half past seven. Various duties awaited me on my arrival. I had to sit with the girls during their hour of study. Then it was my turn to read prayers, to see them to bed. Afterwards, I supped with the other teachers. Even when we finally retired for the night, the inevitable Miss Grice was still my companion. We had only a short end of candle in our candlestick, and I dreaded lest she should talk till it was all burnt out. Fortunately, however, the heavy supper she had eaten produced a soporific effect. She was already snoring before I had unfinished dressing. Before I had finished undressing, there still remained an inch of candle. I now took out my letter. The seal was with an initial F. I broke it. The contents were brief. If J.E., who advertised in the Shire Herald of last Thursday, possesses the acquirements mentioned, and if she is in position to give satisfactory references as to character, incompetency, a situation can be offered her where there is but one pupil, a little girl, under ten years of age, and where the salary is thirty pounds per annum. J.E. is requested to send references, name, address, and all particulars to the direction. Mrs. Fairfax, Thornfield, near Millcote, Shire. I examined the document long. The writing was old-fashioned and rather uncertain, like that of an elderly lady. This circumstance was satisfactory. A private fear had haunted me that in thus acting for myself and by my own guidance, I ran the risk of getting into some scrape. And above all things, I wished the result of my endeavours to be respectable, proper and regal. I now felt that an elderly lady was no bad ingredient in the business I had on hand. Mrs. Fairfax. I saw her in a black gown and widow's cap, frigid, perhaps, but not uncivil, a model of elderly English respectability. Thornfield, that, doubtless, was the name of her house, a neat orderly spot, I was sure, though I failed in my efforts to conceive a correct plan of the premises. Millcote, Shire, I brushed up my recollections of the map of England. Yes, I saw it, both the Shire and the town. Shire was seventy miles nearer London than the remote county where I now resided. That was a recommendation to me. I longed to go where there was life and movement. Millcote was a large manufacturing town on the banks of the A, 
a busy place enough, doubtless, so much better. It would be a complete change, at least. Not that my fancy was much captivated by the idea of long chimneys and clouds of smoke, but, I argued, Thornfield will, probably, be a good way from the town. Here the socket of the candle dropped and the wick went out. Next day new steps were to be taken. My plans could no longer be confined to my own breast. I must impart them in order to achieve their successes. Having sought and obtained an audience of the superintendent during the noontime recreation, I told her I had a prospect of getting a new situation where the salary would be double what I now received, for at Lowood I only got £15 per annum, and requested she would break the matter for me to Mr Brocklehurst or some of the committee, and ascertain whether they would permit me to mention them as references. She obligingly consented to act as mediatrix in the matter. The next day she laid the affair before Mr Brocklehurst, who said that Mrs Reed must be written to, as she was my natural guardian. A note was accordingly addressed to that lady, who returned for answer that I might do as I pleased, and she had long relinquished all interference in my affairs. This note went the round of the committee, and at last, after what appeared to me most tedious delay, formal leave was given me to better my condition if I could, and an assurance added that as I had always conducted myself well, both as teacher and pupil at Lowood, a testimonial of character and capacity, signed by the inspectors of that institution, should forthwith be furnished to me. This testimonial I accordingly received in about a month, forwarded a copy of it to Mrs Fairfax, and got that lady's reply stating that she was satisfied and fixing that day fortnight as the period for my assuming the post of governess in her house. I now busied myself in preparations. The fortnight passed rapidly. I had not a very large wardrobe, though it was equate to my wants, and the last day sufficed to pack my trunk, the same I had brought with me eight years ago from Gateshead. The box was corded, the card nailed on. In half an hour, the carrier was to call for it to take it to Lowton, whether I myself was to repair at an early hour the next morning to meet the coach. I had brushed my black stuff travelling dress, prepared my bonnet, gloves and muff, sought in all my drawers to see that no article was left behind, and now, having nothing more to do, I sat down and tried to rest. I could not. Though I had been on foot all day, I could not now repose an instant. I was much too excited. A phase of my life is closing tonight, a new one opening tomorrow, impossible to slumber in the interval. I must watch feverishly while the change was being accomplished. Niece, said a servant who met me in the lobby, where I was wandering like a troubled spirit, a person below wishes to see you. The carrier, no doubt, I thought and ran downstairs without inquiry. I was passing the black parlour or teacher's sitting room, the door of which was half open to go to the kitchen, when someone ran out. Eater, I'm sure. I could have told her anywhere, cried the individual who stopped my progress and took my hand. 
I looked. I saw a woman attired like a well-dressed servant, matronly yet still young, very good-looking, with black hair and eyes and lively complexion. Well, who is it? she asked, in a voice with a smile I half recognised. You've not quite forgotten me, I think, Miss Jane. In another second I was embracing and kissing her rapturously. Bessie! 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 That was all I said, whereat she half laughed, half cried, and we both went into the parlour. By the fire stood a little fellow of three years old, in plaid frock and trousers. That is my little boy, said Bessie directly. And you are married, Bessie? Yes, nearly five years since, to Robert Levin, the coachman. And I have a little girl besides Bobby there, and I have christened Jane. And you don't live at Gateshead? I live at the lodge. The old porter has left. Well, and how do they all get on? Tell me everything about them, Bessie. Uh, but sit down first, and Bobby, come and sit on my knee, will you? But Bobby preferred slidling over to his mother. You've not grown very tall, Miss Jane, nor so very stout, continued Mrs. Levin. I dare say they've not kept you too well at school. Miss Reed is head and shoulders taller than you are, and Miss Georgiana would make two of you in breadth. Georgiana's very handsome, I suppose, Bessie. Very. She went up to London last winter with her mamma. Now everybody admired her, and a young lord fell in love with her. But his relations were against the match, and, what do you think? He and Miss Georgiana made it up to run away, but they were found out and stopped. It was Miss Reid that found them. I believe she was envious, and now she and her sister lead a cat and doll life together. They are always quarrelling. Well, and what of John Reid? Oh, he is not doing so well as his mamma could wish. He went to college and he got plucked, I think they call it. And then his uncles wanted him to be a barrister and study the law. But he is such a dissipated young man. They will never make much of him, I think. What does he look like? He is very tall. Some people call him a fine-looking young man, but... He has such thick lips. And Mrs. Reed? Mrs. looks stout and well enough in the face. But I think she's not quite easy in her mind. Mr. John's conduct does not please her. He spends a great deal of money. Did she send you here, Bessie? No, indeed. But I have long wanted to see you. And when I heard that there had been a letter from you and that you were going to another part of the country, I thought I'd just set off and get a look at you before you were quite out of my reach. I'm afraid you are disappointed in me, Bessie. I said this laughing. I perceived that Bessie's glance, though it expressed regard, did in no shape denote admiration. No, Miss Jane, not exactly. You are genteel enough. You look like a lady, and it's as much as I ever expected of you. You were no beauty as a child. I smiled at Bessie's frank answer. I felt that it was correct, but I confess I was not quite indifferent to its import. At eighteen, most people wish to please, 
in the conviction that they have not an exterior likely to second that desire, brings anything but gratification. I dare say you are clever, though, continued Bessie by way of solace. What can you do? Can you play on the piano? A little. There was one in the room. Bessie went and opened it, and then asked me to sit down and give her a tune. I played a waltz or two, and she was charmed. The Mrs. Raids could not play as well, she said exultantly. I always said you were surpassed them in learning. And can you draw? That is one of my paintings over the chimney piece. It was a landscape in watercolours, of which I had made a present to the superintendent, in acknowledgment of her obliging mediation with the committee on my behalf, and which she had framed and glazed. Well, that is beautiful, Miss Jane. It is as fine a picture as any Miss Reed's drawing master could paint, let alone the young ladies themselves, who could not come near it. And have you learned French? Yes, Bessie, I can both read it and speak it. And you can work on muslin and canvas? I can. Oh, you are quite a lady, Miss Jane. I knew you would be. You will get on whether your relations notice you or not. There was something I wanted to ask you. Have you ever heard anything from your father's kinsfolk, the heirs, Never in my life. Well, you know, Mrs. always said they were poor and quite despicable, and they may be poor, but I believe they are as much gentry as the reeds are. For one day, nearly seven years ago, a Mr. Eyre came to Geateshead and wanted to see you. Mrs. said you were at school fifty miles off. He seemed so disappointed, for he could not stay. He was going on a voyage to a foreign country and the ship was to sail from London in a day or two. He looked quite a gentleman and I believe he was your father's brother. What foreign country was he going to, Bessie? An island, thousands of miles off, where they make wine. Um, the butler did tell me. Madeira, I suggested. Yes, that is it. That is the very word. So he went? Yes. He did not stay many minutes in the house. Mrs. was very high with him. She called him afterwards a sneaking tradesman. My Robert believes he was a wine merchant. Very likely, I returned. Or perhaps clerk or agent to a wine merchant. Bessie and I conversed about old times an hour longer. And then she was obliged to leave me. I saw her again for a few minutes the next morning at Lowton while I was waiting for the coach. We parted finally at the door of the Brocklehurst Arms there. Each went her separate way. She set off for the brow of Lowood Fell to meet the conveyance which was to take her back to Gateshead. I mounted the vehicle which was to bear me to new duties and a new life in the unknown environs of Millcote. Oh boy, that's the end of chapter 10. Oh my goodness, that was a long chapter. You like how I, <laughs> it makes my nose like, my voice sound nasally if my nose isn't clear and I don't want to blow my nose. That was chapter 10. We are on a new adventure. 
Jane has graduated from her school age times at Lowood. What's going to happen? And can you believe that she even survived? Yikes. I hope you don't have to have any kind of experience like that. I will see you next time with chapter 11. Bye.